You're listening to The Gunfighter Project, the group that brings you knowledge and experience in order to help prepare you for your worst day by making you formidable and adaptable. Enjoy. Welcome back to The Gunfighter Project, ladies and gents. Episode 042. Today is going to be a good one. Today is one that I've kind of been waiting to do for a little while and I just decided to jump on and do it. So let's fucking crack in. Um, so today we're talking about the Iranian embassy siege. This is possibly one of the most famous and well-known um, special operations missions in history, I reckon. Um, it was one of the first ones that I'd ever heard about. Um, and we're going to crack on with that. We're going to talk about pretty similar to the 9-11 episode. We're going to talk about uh, the start, the perpetrators, the dates, timeline, um, background behind it, and kind of what went down. So uh, let's crack on. I'm going to be reading. I've done research, compiled some notes, and we'll just crack on with that. Um, before we do get into the episode, I'd just like to thank all of you guys for supporting Row for the Blue over the month of February. If you're listening to this at, on the day of release, it'll be two days left, um, which is fucking exciting. Um, so, yeah, thank you for supporting we also have the Run Club this Sunday in Brisbane, 3rd of March at 8 o'clock at Woody Point in Redcliffe. Um, I will post on my story kind of like the meeting location. We'll crack on from there. Go for a nice little five-clicker. Bring your family, friends, pets, uh, whatever, first responders, military, veterans, all welcome, uh, and let's try and build this community. So let's crack on with the Iranian Embassy Siege. The Iranian, Iranian embassy siege took place from the 30th of April to the 5th of May 1980 after a group of six armed men stormed the Iranian embassy on Prince's Gate in South Kensington, London. The gunmen, Iranian Arabs campaigning for the sovereignty of the Khuzestan province, took 26 people hostage, including embassy staff, several visitors, and a police officer who'd been guarding the embassy. They demanded the release of prisoners in Khuzestan and their own safe passage out of the United Kingdom. The British government quickly decided that safe passage would not be granted and a siege ensued. Subsequently, police negotiators secured the release of five hostages in exchange for minor concessions such as the broadcasting of the hostage takers' demands on British television. By the sixth day of the, of the siege, the gunmen had increasingly frustrated, were increasingly frustrated at the lack of progress in meeting their demands. That evening, they killed a hostage and threw his body out of the embassy. The Special Air Service, SAS, a special forces regiment of the British Army, initiated Operation Nimrod to rescue the remaining hostages, abseiling from the roof and forcing entry through the windows. During the 17-minute raid, they rescued all but one of the remaining hostages and killed five of the six hostage takers. An inquest cleared the SAS of any wrongdoing, the sole remaining gunman served 27 years in British prison. The operation brought the SAS to the public eye for the first time and bolstered the reputation of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's government. The SAS was quickly overwhelmed by the number of applications it received from people inspired by the operation and experienced greater demand for expertise from foreign governments. The building, damaged by fire during the assault, was not reopened until 1993. The SAS raid, televised live on a bank holiday evening, became a defining moment in British history and proved a career boost for several journalists. 
It became the subject of multiple documentaries and works of fiction, including several films and television series. Uh, so the address was 16 Princes Gate, South Kensington, London, England. Uh, the result, obviously, the embassy was recaptured after a six-day siege. Um, cool. All right. So the motives. We'll crack on to the background. Uh, the hostage takers were members of the Democratic Revolutionary Front for the Liberation of Arabistan, Iranian Arabs protesting for the establishment of an autonomous Arab state in the south, southern region of the Iranian province of Khuzestan, which is home to an Arab-speaking minority. The oil-rich area had become the source of much of Iran's wealth, having been developed by multinational companies during this reign of the Shah. According to Awan Ali Muhammad, suppression of the Arab sovereignty movement was the spark that led to his desire to attack the Iranian embassy in London. The plan was inspired by the Iran hostage crisis in which supporters of the revolution held the staff of the American embassy in Tehran hostage. Arrival in London. Using Iraqi passports, Awan and three other members of the DRFLA arrived in London on the 31st of March 1980 and rented a flat in Earls Court, West London. They claimed they had met by chance on the flight. Over the following days, the group swelled with up to a dozen men in the flat at one occasion. Awan was 27 and from Kyrgyzstan. He had studied at the University of Tehran where he became politically active. He had been imprisoned by Savak. Savak was a secret police, uh, domestic security and intelligence service in Iran during the reign of Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Savak operated from 1957 until Prime Minister Shapur Bakhtiar ordered its dissolution during the climax of the 1979 Iranian Revolution. And bore scars, which he said were from torture in Savak custody. The other members of his group were Shakir Abdullah Radhil, known as Faisal Awan's second-in-command, who also claimed to have been tortured by Savak. Shakir Sultan Saeed or Hassan, Tamer Mohammed Hussein and Abbas Fauzi Badavi Najad or Ali and Maki Hunan Ali, the youngest of the group who went by the name of Maki. On the 30th of April, the men informed their landlord that they were going to Bristol for a week and then returning to Iraq, stated they would no longer require the flat and arrange for their belongings to be sent to Iraq. They left the building at 9.30 on the 30th of April. Their initial destination is unknown, but en route to the, en route to the Iranian embassy, they collected firearms, including pistols and submachine guns, ammunition and hand grenades. The weapons, predominantly Soviet-made, are believed to have been smuggled into the United Kingdom in a diplomatic bag belonging to Iraq. Shortly before 11.30 and almost two hours after vacating the nearby flat in Lexham Gardens, South Kensington, the six men arrived outside the embassy. According to, the, to a 2014 academic study into the Iran-Iraq war, which broke out later in 1980, the attackers were recruited and trained by the Iraqi government as part of a campaign of subversion against Iran, which included sponsorship of several separatist movements. Special Air Service is a regiment of the British Army and a part of the United Kingdom Special Forces originally formed in the Second World War to conduct 
irregular warfare. Western European governments were prompted to form specialist police and military counterterrorist units following a Munich massacre at the 1972 Olympic Games, during which a police operation to end a hostage crisis ended in chaos. In the resulting firefight, a police officer, most of the hostage takers and all of the hostages were killed. In response, West Germany created GSG-9, which was quickly followed by French IGN. Following these examples, the British government, worried that the country was unprepared for a similar crisis in the United Kingdom, ordered the formation of the counter-revolutionary warfare wing of the SAS. This became the UK's primary anti-terrorist and anti-hijacking unit. The SAS had taken part in counter-insurgency operations abroad since 1945 and had trained their bodyguards of influential people whose deaths would be contrary to British interests. Thus, it was better... It was believed to be better prepared for the role than any other unit in the police or somewhere else in the armed forces. The CRW's wing was first operational experience was the storming of the Lufthansa flight 181. I don't know where uh, what that name is. In 1977, where a small detachment of soldiers were sent to assist GSG-9, the elite West German police unit set up after the events of 1972. So getting into the siege, day one, 30th of April. At approximately 11.30 on the Wednesday, the 30th of April, six heavily armed members of the DRFLA stormed the Iranian embassy building on Princess Gate, South Kensington. The gunmen quickly overpowered Police Constable Trevor Locke of the Metropolitan Police Diplomatic Protection Group, or DPG. Locke was carrying a concealed Smith & Wesson 38 caliber revolver but was unable to draw it before he was overpowered, although he did manage to press the panic button on his radio. Locke was later frisk, frisked, but the gunman conducting the search did not find the constable's weapon. He remained in possession of the revolver and kept it concealed. He refused to remove his coat, which he told the gunman was to preserve his image as a police officer. The officer also refused, offer, refused offers of food, throughout the siege for fear that the weapon would be seen if he had to use the toilet and a gunman decided to escort him. Although the majority of people in the embassy were captured, three managed to escape, two by climbing out of a ground floor window and the third by climbing across a first floor parapet to the Ethiopian embassy next door. A fourth person, Gollum Ali Afroz, the charge d'affaires and thus most senior Iranian official present briefly escaped by jumping out of a first floor window but was injured in the process and quickly captured. Afruz and the 25 other hostages were all taken to a room on the second floor. The majority of the hostages were embassy staff, predominantly Iranian nationals, but several British employees were also captured. The other hostages were all visitors with the exception of Locke, the British uh, police officer guarding the embassy. Afruz had been appointed to the position less than a year prior his predecessor having been dismissed after the revolution. Abbas Falahi, who had been a butler before the revolution, was appointed the doorman by Afruz. One of the British members of staff was Ron Morris the Bat from Battersea, who had worked for the embassy in various positions since 1947. During the course of the siege, police and journalists established the identities of several other hostages. Mustafa Karkaudi, uh, was a journalist covering the crisis at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. 
and was the embassy was at the embassy for an interview with Abdul Fazi Azati, the cultural attaché. Muhammad Hashia Faruqi was another journalist at the embassy to interview Afruz for an article on the Iranian uh, revolution. Simeon, Sim Harris, and Chris Kramer, both employees of the BBC, were at the embassy attempting to obtain visas to visit Iran, hoping to cover the aftermath of the 1979 revolution after several unsuccessful attempts. They found themselves sitting next to Mutaba. Murnavad, who was there to consult Ahmad Dagdar, the embassy's medical advisor, and Ali Ashgar Tabai. Fuck me. I get fucked over in every single individual episode that I do where I have to read Arabic names. If anyone's Arabic reading this, fucking get in contact so you can tutor me a little bit on how to say these names. I'm sorry. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be disrespectful to these people. But fuck me, I just can't seem to wrap my head around it sometimes. I need to hear somebody say it. I think that's my issue. Uh, Tabba Tabai, uh, who was collecting a map for use in a presentation he'd been asked to give at the end of the course he had been attending. Police arrived at the embassy almost immediately after the first reports of gunfire and within 10 minutes, seven DPG officers were on the scene. The officers moved to surround the embassy but retreated when a gunman appeared at a window and threatened to open fire. Deputy Assistant Commissioner John Dello arrived 30 minutes later and took command of the operation. Dello established a temporary headquarters in his car before moving into the Royal School of Needlework further down Princess Gate and then to 24 Princess Gate, a nurse's school. Nursery school, sorry. From his various command posts, Dello coordinated the police response, including the deployment of D-11, the Metropolitan Police's marksmen and officers with specialist surveillance equipment. Police negotiators, led by Max Vernon, made contact with Iran via a field telephone passed through one of the embassy windows and were assisted by a negotiator and a psychiatrist. At 15.15, Iran issued the DRFLA's first demand, the release of 91 Arabs held in prison in Khuzestan and threatened to blow up the embassy and the hostages if this was not done by noon on the 1st of May. Large numbers of journalists were quickly on the scene and were moved into a holding area to the west of, of the front of the embassy, while dozens of Iranian protesters had also arrived near the embassy and remained there through the siege. A separate police command post was established to contain the protests, which descended into violent confrontations with the police on several occasions. Shortly after the beginning of the crisis, the representatives from the police and the armed forces, the meeting was chaired by William Whitelaw, the Home Secretary, as Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister, was unavailable. The Iranian government accused the British and American governments of sponsoring the attack as revenge for the ongoing siege of the US Embassy in Tehran. Given the lack of cooperation from Iran, Thatcher kept apprised uh, of the situation by Whitelaw determined that British law would be applied to the embassy. At 1630, the gunmen released their first hostage, Frida uh, Mosaferian. She had been unwell since the siege began and Iran had asked for a doctor to be sent into the embassy to treat her, but the police refused. The other hostages deceived Iran into believing that Mosaferian was pregnant and Iran eventually released Mosaferian after her condition deteriorated. Day 2, 1st of May. 
The Cobra meetings continued through the night and into Thursday. Meanwhile, two teams were dispatched from the headquarters of the Special Air Service uh, near Hereford and arrived at a holding area in Regent's Park Barracks. The teams from B Squadron, complemented by specialists from other squadrons, were equipped with CS gas, stun grenades and explosives and armed with Browning high-power pistols and Heckler and Koch MP5 machine guns. Lieutenant Colonel Michael Rose, commander of the 22 SAS, had travelled ahead of the detachment and introduced himself to Delo, the commissioner or the commander of the police operation. At approximately 03.30 on 1st of May, one of the SAS teams moved into the building next door to the embassy, normally occupied by the Royal College of General Practitioners, where they were briefed on Rose's immediate action plan to be implemented should the SAS be required to storm the building before a more sophisticated plan could be formed. In the first in the morning of 1st of May, the gunman ordered one of the hostages to telephone the BC's news desk. During the call, Awan took the receiver and spoke directly to the BBC journalist. He identified to the group to which the gunman uh, belonged and stated that the non-Iranian hostages would not be harmed but refused to allow the journalist to speak to any of the hostages. At some point during the day, the police disabled the embassy's telephone lines, leaving the hostage takers just the field telephone for outside communication. As the hostages woke up, Chris Kramer, a sound organiser for the BBC, appeared to become seriously ill. He and three other non-Arab hostages had decided one of them must get out, and to do this, he had convincingly exaggerated the symptoms of an existing illness. His colleague, Sim Harris, had, was taken to the field telephone to negotiate for a doctor. The police negotiator refused the request, and tell, instead telling Harris to persuade Owan to release Kramer. The ensuing negotiations between Harris, Owan, and the police took up most of the morning, and Kramer was eventually released at 11.15. He was rushed to hospital in an ambulance accompanied by police officers sent to gather information from him. As the deadline of noon approached, set the previous day for the release of the Arab prisoners, the police became convinced that the gunmen did not have the capability to carry out their threat of blowing up the embassy and persuaded Awan to agree to a new deadline of 1,400. The police allowed the deadline to pass with no immediate response from the gunmen. During the afternoon, Awan altered his demands, requesting that the British media broadcast a statement of the group's grievances and for ambassadors of three Arab countries to negotiate the group's safe passage out of the UK once a statement had been broadcast. At approximately 20.00, Awan had became agitated by noises coming from the Ethiopian embassy next door. The noise came from technicians who were drilling holes in the wall to implant listening devices, but PC Trevor Locke, when asked to identify the sound, attributed it to mice. Cobra decided to create ambient noise to cover the sound created by technicians and instructed British gas to commence drilling on an adjacent road, supposedly to repair a gas main. The drilling was aborted after it agitated the gunman and instead, British Airport's authority, owner of London Heathrow Airport, was told to instruct approaching aircraft to fly over the embassy at low altitude. Day 3, 2nd of May. At 09.30 on the 2nd of May, Awan appeared at the first floor window of the embassy to demand access to the telex system, which the police had disabled along with the telephone lines and threatened to kill Abdul Fazi Azadi, the cultural attaché. The police refused and Awan pushed Azadi, who he had been holding at gunpoint uh, at the window, 
across the room before demanding to speak to somebody from the BBC who knew Sim Harris. The police, revealed, uh, relieved to have a demand to which they could easily agree, produced Tony Crabb, managing director of BBC Television News and Harris's boss. Awan shouted his demands for safe passage out of the UK to be negotiated by three ambassadors from Arab countries to Crabb from the first floor window and instructed that they should be broadcast along with a statement of the hostage takers' aims by the BBC. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office informally approached the embassies of Algeria, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Syria and Qatar to ask if their ambassadors would be willing to talk to the hostage takers. The Jordanian ambassador immediately refused and the other five said they would consult their governments. The BBC broadcast the statement that evening, but in a form unsatisfactory to Awan, who considered it to be truncated and incorrect. Meanwhile, the police located the embassy caretaker and took him to their forward headquarters to brief the SAS and senior police officers. He informed them that the embassy's front door was reinforced by a steel security door and that the windows on the ground floor and first floor were fitted with armoured glass, the result of recommendations made after the SAS had been asked to review security arrangements for the embassy several years earlier. Plans for entering the embassy by battering the front door and ground floor windows were quickly scrapped and work began on other ideas. Day 4, 3rd of May. Awan, angered by the BBC's incorrect reporting of his demands the previous evening, contacted the police negotiators shortly after 0600 and accused the authorities of deceiving him. He demanded to speak with an Arab ambassador, but the negotiator on duty claimed that talks were still being arranged by the Foreign Office. Recognising the delaying tactic, Awan told the negotiator that the British hostages would be the last to be released because of the British authorities' deceit. He added that a hostage would be killed unless Tony Crabb was brought back to the embassy. Crabb did not arrive at the embassy until 15.30, nearly 10 hours after Awan demanded his presence. To the frustration of uh, both Awan and Sim Harris, Awan then relayed another statement to Crabb via Mustafa Kakaudi, a journalist also being hostage in the being held hostage in the embassy. The police guaranteed that the statement would be broadcast on the BBC's next news bulletin in exchange for the release of two hostages. The hostages decided amongst themselves that the two to be released would be Hayesh Kanji and Ali Guil Ganzafar, the former as she was pregnant and the latter for no reason other than his loud snoring which kept the other hostages awake at night and irritated the terrorists. Later in the evening, at approximately 2300, an SAS team reconnoitred... What the fuck is that word? The roof of the embassy. Okay. I think that they're trying to get to, like, reconned the roof of the embassy. I don't know what fucking word it is, but... Let's say an uh, SAS team reconned the roof of the embassy. They discovered a skylight and succeeded in unlocking it for potential use as an access point should they be required to storm the building later on. They also attached ropes to the chimneys to allow soldiers to abseil down the building and gain access through the windows if necessary. Day 5, 4th of May. During the day, the Foreign Office held further talks with diplomats from Arabian countries in the hope of persuading them to go to the embassy and talk to the hostage takers. The talks, hosted by Douglas Hurd, ended in stalemate. The diplomats insisted they must be able to offer safe passage 
out of the UK for the gunman, believing this would be the only way to guarantee a peaceful outcome. But the British government was adamant that safe passage would not be considered under any circumstances. Kakudi, through whom Owan had issued his revised demands the previous day, became increasingly ill throughout the day and by the evening was feverish, which led to suggestions that the police had spiked the food which had been sent into the embassy. John Dello, the commissioner of the uh, the commander of the police operations, had apparently considered the idea and even consulted a doctor about its viability, but eventually dismissed it as impractical. The SAS officers involved in the operation, including Brigadier Peter de la Belair, Director SAS Rose, and Major Hector Goulan, the commander of the team that would undertake any raid, spent the day refining their plans for an assault. Day 6, 5th of May. Awan woke Locke at dawn, convinced that an intruder was in the embassy. Locke was sent to investigate, but no intruder was found. Later in the morning, Awan called Locke to examine a bulge in the wall separating the Iranian embassy from the Ethiopian, Ethiopian embassy next door. The bulge had, in fact, been caused by the removal of bricks to allow an assault team to break through the wall and to implement listening devices, resulting in the weakening of the wall. Although Locke assured him that he did not believe the police were about to storm the building, Awan remained convinced that they were up to something and moved the male hostages from the room in which they had spent the last four days to another down the hall. Tensions rose throughout the morning and at 1300, Awan told the police he would kill a hostage unless he was able to speak to an Arab ambassador within 45 minutes. At 1340, Locke informed the negotiator that the hostage, that the gunman had taken a bus... Uh, Abbas Lavasani, the embassy's chief press officer, downstairs and were preparing to execute him. Lavasani, a strong supporter of the 1979 Iranian revolution, had repeatedly provoked his captors during the siege. According to Locke, Lavasani stated if they were going to kill a hostage, Lavasani wanted it to be him. At exactly 13.45, 45 minutes after Awan's demand to speak to an ambassador, three shots were heard from inside the embassy. Whitelaw, who had been chairing the Cobridge crisis meetings during the siege, was rushed back to the White uh, was rushed back to Whitehall from a function he had been attending in Slough, or Slough, roughly twenty miles or thirty kilometres away, arriving nineteen minutes after the shots had been reported. He was briefed on the SAS plan by Della Belair, who told him to expect that up to forty percent of the hostages would be killed in an assault. After deliberations, Whitelaw instructed the SAS to prepare to assault the building at short notice, an order that was received by Lieutenant Colonel Rose at 1550. <clears throat> by 1700, the SAS were in a position to assault the embassy at 10 minutes' notice to move. The police negotiators recruited the imam from Regent's Park Mosque at 1820, fearing that a crisis point had been reached, and asked him to talk to the gunman. Three further shots were fired during the course of the imam's conversation with Awan. Awan announced that a hostage had been killed and the rest would die in 30 minutes unless his demands were met. A few minutes later, Lavasani's body was dumped out the front door. Upon a preliminary examination conducted at the scene, a forensic pathologist estimated that Lavasani had been dead for at least an hour, meaning he could not have been killed by the most recent three shots and leading the police to believe that two hostages had been killed. In fact, only Lavasani had been shot. After Lavasani's body had been recovered, Sir David McNee, 
Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police contacted the Home Secretary to request approval to hand control of the operation over to the British Army. Under the provisions of military aid to the civil power, Whitelaw relayed the request to Thatcher and the Prime Minister agreed immediately. Thus, John Dello, the ranking officer of the embassy, signed over control of the operation to Lieutenant Colonel Rose at 1907, authorising Rose to, put, to order an assault at his discretion. The signed note is now on display at New Scotland Yard's Crime Museum. Meanwhile, the police negotiators began stalling alarm. They offered concessions in order to distract him and prevent him killing further hostages, buying time for the SAS to make its final preparations for the now inevitable assault. The two SAS teams on scene, Red Team and Blue Team, were ordered to begin their simultaneous assaults under the codename Operation Nimrod at 1923. One group of four men from the Red Team abseiled from the roof down to the rear of the building while another four-man team lowered a stun grenade through the skylight. The detonation of the stun grenade was supposed to coincide with the abseiling team's detonating explosives to gain entry to the building through the second-floor windows. During the descent, one of the abseilers became entangled in his rope. While trying to assist him, one of the other soldiers accidentally smashed a window with his foot. The noise of the breaking window alerted Awan, who was the f- on the first floor communicating with the police negotiators, and he went to investigate. The soldiers were unable to use explosives in case they injured their stranded comrade, but managed to smash their way in using sledgehammers. After the first soldiers entered, a fire started and travelled up the curtains and out of the second floor window, severely burning the stranded soldier. A second wave of abseilers cut him free and he fell to the balcony below before entering the embassy. Slightly behind red team, blue team detonated explosives on a first floor window forcing Sim Harris, who had just run into the room, to take cover. Much of the operation at the front of the embassy took place in full view of the assembled journalists and was broadcast on live television. And Harris's escape across the parapet on a first-floor balcony was captured famously on video. As the soldiers emerged into the first-floor landing, Locke tackled Owan to prevent him attacking the SAS operatives. Awan, still armed, was subsequently shot dead by one of the soldiers. Meanwhile, further teams entered the embassy through the back door and cleared the ground floor and cellar. During the raid, the gunmen holding the male hostages opened fire on their captives, killing Ali Akbar, Samad Saudi, and injuring two others. The SAS began evacuating hostages, taking them down the stairs towards the back door of the embassy. Two of the terrorists were hiding amongst the hostages. One of them produced a hand grenade when he was identified. An SAS soldier who was unable to shoot for concern of hitting a hostage or another soldier pushed the hang, uh, grenade-wielding terrorist to the bottom of the stairs where the two other soldiers shot him dead. The raid lasted 17 minutes and involved 30 to 35 soldiers. The terrorist killed one hostage and seriously wounded two others during the raid, while the SAS killed all but one of the terrorists. The rescued hostages and the remaining terrorist was still concealed among, who were still concealed amongst them were taken into the embassy's back garden and restrained on the ground while they were identified. The last terrorist was identified by Sim Harris and led away by the SAS. <coughs> oh, my apologies. Aftermath. After the end of the siege, PC Trevor Lyke was considered widely bought as a hero. He was awarded the George Medal the United Kingdom's second highest civil honour for his conduct during the siege and for tackling Iran during the SAS raid. 
The only time during the siege that he drew his concealed arm, solid arm, sorry. I'm sure his arm wasn't fucking concealed. In addition, he was honoured by with the freedom of the City of London and in a motion in the House of Commons. Police historian Michael J. Waldron, referring to the television series Dixon of Doc Green, suggested that Locke's restraint in the use of his revolver was a defining example of the power of the Dixon image. And academic Maurice Punch noted the contrast between Locke's actions and the highly aggressive tactics of the SAS. Another academic, Stephen Moisey, commented on the difference in the outcomes between the Iranian embassy siege and the 1975 Balcom Street siege, in which the police negotiated the surrender of four provincial prov- uh, provisional Irish Republican Army members, uh, IRA, without military involvement. Nonetheless, the siege led to calls for increasing the firepower of police to enable them to prevent and deal with similar incidents in the future, and an official report recommended that specialist police firearms units, such as Metropol Police's D11, be better resourced and equipped. Warrant Officer Class 1 Tommy Goodyear was awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal for his part in the assault in which he shot dead a terrorist who was apparently about to throw a grenade amongst the hostages. After the operation concluded, the staff sergeant who was caught in his abseil rope was treated at St. Stephen's Hospital in Fulham. He suffered serious burns to his legs but went on to make a full recovery. The Iranian government welcomed the end of the siege and declared that the two hostages killed were martyrs for the Iranian revolution. They also thanked the British government for preserving action of your police force during the unjust hostage-taking event at the embassy. After the assault concluded, the police conducted an investigation into the siege and the deaths of two hostages and five terrorists, including the actions of the SAS. The soldiers' weapons were taken away for examination and the following day the soldiers themselves were interviewed at length by the police at the regiment's base in Hereford. There was controversy over the deaths of two terrorists in the telex room where male hostages were held. Hostages later said in interviews that they had persuaded their captors to surrender and television footage appeared to show them throwing weapons out the window and holding up a white flag. The two SAS soldiers who killed the men both stated in the inquest into the terrorist death that they believed the men had been reaching for weapons before they were shot. The inquest jury reached the verdict that the soldiers' actions were justifiable homicide known as lawful killing. Fauzi Najad was the only government to survive the assault. After being identified, he was dragged away by an SAS trooper who allegedly intended to take him back into the building and shoot him. (laughs) Good on him. The uh, soldier reportedly changed his mind when it was pointed out to him that the raid was being broadcast on live television. It later emerged that the footage from the back of the embassy was coming from a wireless camera placed in a window of a flat overlooking the embassy. The the camera had been installed by ITN technicians who had posed as guests of a local resident in order to get past the police cordon, which had been in place at the beginning of the siege. Najad was arrested and eventually tried, convicted, and sentenced to life imprisonment for his role in the siege. He became eligible for parole in 2005. As a foreign national, he would have been immediately deported to his home country, but Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, incorporated into British law by the Human Rights Act 1998, had been held 
by the European Court of Human Rights to prohibit deportation in cases where the person concerned would likely be tortured and or executed in his home country. Najad was eventually paroled in 2008 and granted leave to remain in the UK but was not given political asylum. The Home Office released a statement saying, we do not give refugee status to convicted terrorists. Our aim is to deport people as quickly as possible, but the law requires us to first obtain assurances that the person being returned will not face certain death. After 27 years in prison, Najad was deemed no longer a threat to society, but Trevor Locke wrote to the Home Office to oppose his release. Because it is accepted by the British government that he would be executed or tortured, he cannot be deported in Iran. He now lives in South London, having assumed another identity. Prior to 1980, oh, sorry, this is the next part, long-term impact. Prior to 1980, London had been the scene of several terrorist incidents related to Middle Eastern politics, including the assassination of the former Prime Minister of the Republic of Yemen, and an attack on a coach containing staff from the Israeli airline. Although there were other isolated incidents relating to the Middle Eastern and North African politics in the years following the embassy siege, most prominently the murder of Yvonne Fletcher from inside the Libyan embassy in 1984, historian Jerry White believed the resolution of the siege effectively marked the end of London's three years as a world theatre for the resolution of Middle Eastern troubles. The SAS raid, codenamed Operation Nimrod, was broadcast live at a peak time on a bank holiday, Melbourne evening, uh, Monday evening, sorry, and was viewed by millions of people, mostly in the UK, making it a defining moment in British history. Both the BBC and ITV interrupted their scheduled programming. The BBC interrupting the broadcast of the World Snooker Championship final to show the end of the siege which proved to be a major career boost for several journalists. Kate Aidy, the BBC's duty reporter at the embassy when the SAS assault began, went on to cover Najad's trial and then to report from war zones across the world and eventually became chief news correspondent for BBC News, while David Goldsmith and his team, responsible for the hidden camera at the back of the embassy, was awarded a BAFTA for their coverage. The success of the operation combined with the high profile it was given by the media invoked a sense of national pride compared to victory in European Day, in Europe Day, the end of the Second World War in Europe. The operation was declared an almost unqualified success. Margaret Thatcher recalled that she was congratulated wherever she went over the following days and received messages of support and congratulation from other world leaders. However, the incident strained already tense relations between UK and Iran following the Iranian Revolution. The Iranian government declared that the siege of the embassy was planned by the British and American governments and that the hostages who had been killed were martyrs of the revolution. Operation Nimrod brought the SAS, a regiment that had fallen into obscurity after its fame during the Second World War, partly owing to the covert nature of its operations, back into the public eye. The regiment was not pleased with its new high profile, having enjoyed its previous obscurity. Nonetheless, the operation vindicated the SAS, which had been threatened with disbandment and whose use of resources had previously been considered a waste. The regiment was quickly overwhelmed by new applicants. Members of the membership of the 22 SAS, 
is open only to individuals currently serving the armed forces, allowing applications from any individual in any service. But the unit also has two regiments from the Volunteer Territorial Army, 21 SAS and 23 SAS. Both the TA regiments received hundreds more applications than in previous years, prompting Della Bielair to remark that the applicants seemed convinced that a balaclava helmet and a submachine gun would be handed to them over the counter so that they could go off and conduct embassy-style sieges of their own. Meanwhile, the SAS became a sought-after assignment for career army officers. All three units were forced to introduce additional fitness tests at the start of the application process. The SAS also experienced an increased demand for their expertise to train the forces of friendly countries and those who collapse who was considered not to be in the British interest. The government developed a protocol for lending the SAS to foreign governments to assist with hijackings or sieges, and it became fashionable for politicians to be seen associating with the regiment. Despite its new fame, the SAS did not have a high profile. During the 1982 Falklands War, partly due to a lack of operations, and next came to the fore in the 1990-1991 Gulf War. British government's response to the crisis and the then successful use of force to end it strengthened the conservative government of the day and boosted Thatcher's popular, uh, personal credibility. McNee believed that the conclusion of the siege exemplified the British government's policy of refusing to give in to terrorist demands. Nowhere was the effectiveness of this response to terrorism more effectively demonstrated. The embassy building was severely damaged by fire. It was more than a decade before the British and Iranian governments came to an agreement whereby the United Kingdom would repair the damage to the embassy in London and Iran would pay for the repairs to the British embassy in Tehran, which had been damaged during the 1979 Iranian Revolution. Iranian diplomats began working from 16 Princess Gate again in 1993. The DRFLA was undermined by its links with the Iraqi government after it emerged that Iraq had sponsorship had sponsored the training and equipping of the hostages take, hostage takers. The Iran-Iraq war started five months after the end of the siege and continued for eight years. The campaign for autonomy of Khuzestan was lately forgot, largely forgotten in the wake of the hostilities, as was the DRFLA. Cool. Well, that one's done. Um, that was fun. That was cool um, looking into it. Like I said, it's probably one of the most widely known special operations um, ever. Uh, I'm not going to rank my favorite, but um, it's definitely up there with one of the coolest ones. Um, if you like it said in there, it was broadcast. There's footage of it, uh, and that'll be in the videos that are made for this episode. But thanks for joining us. Um, hope for you to look after yourself, look after your family. We'll see you on Friday for the weekly update. Thank you again. Three days left on Road for the Blue, so please jump on over there and donate if you can. If not, thanks again for the support. If you are in Brizzy, I hope to see you at the Brizzy Run Club on Sunday, 3rd of March at 0800 at Woody Point in Redcliffe. That is Woody Point in Redcliffe. I hope to see you there. Um, thank you for listening and enjoy yourselves. Stay formidable, stay adaptable.